Welcome to Sparking Wholeness, where we talk all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Erin Carey. I'm a survivor of bipolar disorder and a self-proclaimed nutrition nerd who loves asking why. As a certified integrative nutrition health coach, my goal is to help people find balance, and I want to help you find ways to spark wholeness in your life. For more information, check out sparkingwholeness.com or on the Instagram handle, Sparking Wholeness. And now, get ready for today's awesome show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sparking Wholeness. This is Erin Carey, and today I am super excited to introduce you to integrative psychiatrist, Dr. Nosheen Ranjbar. Born and raised in Tehran, Iran, until immigrating to the U.S. in adolescence, Dr. Nosheen Ranjbar developed a passion for integrative medicine and a holistic view of healing from early on in her life. Throughout her studies and life experiences, including her own illness, as well as caring for her mom, who suffered from several autoimmune illnesses and cancer, to fostering children with PTSD and volunteering on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation and in refugee communities, she developed a keen interest in approaches to healing trauma and advocating for holistic mental health in culturally appropriate ways. Harvard-trained and board-certified in general psychiatry, child and adolescent psychiatry, and integrative medicine, she is currently assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of Arizona. She serves as medical director of the Integrative Psychiatry Clinic at Banner University of Arizona Medical Center in Tucson. In collaboration with the Center for Mind-Body Medicine and the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine, she continues to expand her work in integrative mental health and in working with the underserved, particularly with American Indian communities as well as those seeking asylum. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you. I'm really excited to get into um, everything. Can you start out just by sharing a little bit, you know, I mentioned in your bio, uh, you, you immigrated here to the U.S. in adolescence, and you have had your own personal experience with holistic healing and integrative medicine. And would you share a little bit about your background as we get started? Sure. Uh, so I think that I'm, I feel very fortunate to have gone through many things that now I see in the children and the families that I work with. You know, I uh, share with the residents and the fellows and the medical students that I teach uh, that it's one thing to read about a diagnosis and a treatment and an approach in a book. It's a whole other story, having lived some of those experiences, having been in different situations, because that's what really uh, makes a healer a healer, not so much just the knowledge. And if you're lucky enough, then you get to have both and just enough of the two to, to make it work. Because mm -hmm. uh, obviously, you know, I certainly feel like if I had not gotten the support that I needed when I was going through my challenges, there is no way that I would be well enough to go on to get trained and be um, a physician and be able to do what I'm doing now. Wow. So it's a double-edged sword and it's, and it's a blessing in disguise. But while when we're, once we're going through the process, it doesn't feel fun or um, that it's ever going to end. Um, and so really to have access to resources that make the journey less, less grueling with less suffering and more insight and support can make all the difference. And I'm a prime example of that. I love that. Yeah. And as I always say, it's so important to have a lot of tools in our toolbox for mental health. You know, it's not just a one size fits all solution for everybody that we need a lot of resources, as you mentioned. And so can you explain a little bit, you know, why or how the integrative medicine approach to psychiatry may be different from, from the traditional approach? Sure. So uh, I guess historically, psychiatry has gone from uh, an overemphasis um, or almost a pure emphasis on psychoanalysis, you know, mm -hmm. the Freudian era, to an almost over uh, simplification and emphasis on medications and the biology of illness. And I think that uh, over the past 10 years or so, we're acknowledging that neither of these extremes are the answer on their mm -hmm. own. And even though the therapeutic pieces and the biological underpinnings are absolutely essential to understanding the big picture, neither of them are enough. And overemphasis on either one really misses the boat on the other, as well as all 
all these other aspects of illness and health. And so from an integrative, comprehensive, holistic perspective of mental health, um, each individual's ability to work through challenges as they come up, go through the rites of passage of childhood into adolescence to adulthood, uh, requires certain things to be in place for the nervous system, the emotional development, the hormonal development, and the maturity and the insights and wisdom to be at their optimum so people can have a good life. And some of those things, of course, are the building blocks that I feel like I'm a broken record talking about, <laughs> but, you know, they start with the womb, you know, the, the environment of, of the womb, the genetics of the mom and dad, culture and environment somebody is born into, nutrition, basic love and safety and being cared for as a child, friendships, social interactions that are healthy, schooling that is uh, optimal for that mm -hmm. child's learning and ability to excel and not feel like there's something wrong with them or that they're different or have failed in some way. And then emotion regulation techniques, mm. you know, skills to be able to sit with discomfort without losing our cool because mm. stress is part of life. And depending on the genetic and the environmental um, basis that we come from and the parenting we come from, we have a certain level of resiliency and certain strengths and we have certain struggles. And so the more our system is able to regulate itself through various skills, we call these mind-body skills, the better people will be able to cope. And, and when we don't have the support, the nutrition, the sleep, the, the social um, support, and on top of that, we have stressors come our way, if we don't have the skills to regulate our mind, emotions, physical well-being, then we can tip into mental illness. Mm. And it can be depression, it can be anxiety, it can be psychosis, it can be bipolar, it can wow. be post-traumatic stress disorder, substance abuse, eating disorders. So, so when you look at mental health from that standpoint, then the outcome, which is, or, you know, whatever diagnosis someone has, is only one part of what's really going on. Mm -hmm. What underlies that person getting to that diagnosis needs to be understood and yes. uh, seen in, in its whole. And then based on what their culture is, what their belief system is, what their resources are, where they live, what what they have access to, there needs to be a comprehensive treatment plan that may have therapy in it, may have medications in it, may have nutritional mm -hmm. elements in it, may have emotion regulation techniques and skills building in it, and may have education about how this all works in it, mm -hmm. um, and also group support and community support. And, and that is ideally what a, a holistic, integrative approach to mental health, mind-body wellness should really be all about. Otherwise, um, we end up with the broken you know, system that tries to fix what can't really be fixed. I think you paint such a good picture of so many times, you know, I'm, I'm really... I really want to promote mental health advocacy and I really want to erase the stigma with these labels. But at the same time, sometimes we only depend on our label, right? Like it's just the label that we live with. We don't look at those underlying root causes. We don't, we don't want to dig back into trauma or into trauma from the womb even, right? Like there's a lot of emotional trauma that happens in the womb as in young childhood. And yeah, I mean, there's so many factors that you mentioned and as you said, all factors, all of these factors paint a picture of the whole person. And so by slapping on a label and just saying, well, this is what you have, this is what you're going to live with, which is what I was told 25 years ago, take your meds and sleep a lot. Okay, great. Maybe helpful for some people, was helpful for me at the time, but long-term I needed other tools. And so what you're saying is you use 
all of these other tools to help with whole body healing. And I love that so much. So let's start. I want to break down some of the things that you said, because <laughs> they're all really good. Um, emotional regulation. We are not taught emotional regulation. So what can we do to tap into that for ourselves or maybe, you know, for people who are listening, who have young children, um, where do we start with that? How do we even get started? Because this is not taught, you know, we, we're taught, oh, you know, wash your hands or, <laughs> um, you know, what, what are some other, like good nutrient, eat your vegetables, right? We are not taught emotional regulation. So I would love to hear about that. Yes, it's a fascinating topic. So let's go back to the womb because <laughs> mm -hmm. that's where it all begins. I love it. Yeah. So when the little baby fetus is developing in the womb, it is probably the safest, most cared for environment that it could ever imagine for the rest of its life. Oxygen is provided, nutrients are provided, there's nothing to do, no chores, no you know, disturbances, hopefully, from the outside environment. And there is unconditional love, right? No reason to learn how to go to the bathroom or poop or pee, you know, it's all taken care of. When we are born, birth itself is like an ever-present stress trauma that we all experience. It's the most natural and difficult part of coming into this world because we go from everything being provided and cared for to having to struggle to come out mm -hmm. and then we come out to this world and we have to hope that the environment around is going to meet our needs and some of those needs are emotional the love the caring the mom or dad reading our cues you know changing the diaper when it needs to be changed giving us milk when we're hungry removing noise when we're upset by what's going on you know, take us to the doctor when we're sick, all of those things, we are dependent now on somebody else to think that they this needs to be done. And so you can just imagine that early on in our life, we are a setup for trying to figure out how to how to make this work, <laughs> because we're dependent on our environment. And hopefully we have a caregiver or two or more who are tuned and, and can meet us where we're at, provide what we need. And then eventually we'll learn how to talk and how to walk and how to ask for what we need. And hopefully eventually become autonomous, fully functioning adults that can advocate for ourselves and other people. But that's no easy journey, right? And so what's fascinating is that when we come out of the womb, our body and our mind and our system is inherently equipped with techniques and ways to help us regulate. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we would all be dead. Yeah. So what are those, some of those things? For example, the baby cries when he or she is sad or upset, screams to get attention, yawns when it's tired, uh, sleeps when it is needing rest, pees and poops to get rid of these toxic materials that need to come out, eats, you know, to get in nutrients, breathes to take in oxygen and give away the carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, all of these basic ways that the, that the baby's body knows to release what is not needed and take in what is good from the environment are the basic building blocks for emotion regulation. Mm. So um, for example, uh, there was this incredible uh, research done by Dr. David Bercelli, who uh, started out in, in some bomb shelters in the Middle East and was watching adults and little kids in the bomb shelter. And he noticed that the little kids' bodies were all shaking mm. and the adults were all stiff. They weren't moving at all. And 
from that, among many, many other uh, types of work that he and also Dr. Peter Levine did, looking at animals in the wilderness and how we all deal with stress and trauma, uh, they realized that even shaking is one of those things little babies do when they're afraid, uh, because it's one of the ways we release and discharge pent-up uh, negative emotion. Wow. We move, we shake, we dance, we run, we... Uh, play. Those are all ways that little babies, even without being told to, already know how to discharge and how to regulate. Now, that's very basic, right? Um, what happens is that that same baby is constantly watching his or her environment, right? So whenever there's a stressor, he or she is looking to mom and to dad, how are they reacting? You know, what is their way of dealing with whatever just happened? And so we continue to refine and learn how to regulate as our nervous system develops. And we learn how to speak and how to ask for what we need and how to uh, throw a tantrum. <laughs> That's part of the emotion regulation, right? But how it's dealt with in the environment continues to shape how much of these things we do and how much of yeah. the things we forget how to do. And so what's fascinating is that um, some of these basic, um, you know, laughter, tears, yawning, screaming, talking, dancing, moving, these are all the building blocks of what is now called mind-body medicine or emotion regulation skills. Mm -hmm. Because when we have stress happen to us and we are in that environment and we have fear, anger, sadness, frustration come up, which are all normal human emotions. Either we know how to deal with those and express and talk about them, uh, write a song about them, play, you know, with our friends, um, seek support, maybe have tears come up, maybe have laughter, all of these things over time help us not hold on to those negative emotional tensions. Right. But when we don't know what to do with the anger, with the grief, with the fear, and we think we're the only one and we have to hold it together and there is you know, nothing we can do to release it and, and let it just be what it is and let it pass, then it can get stuck in our system. And that contributes to the, the toxic stress over time that can lead someone down the anxiety path or the depression path or the substance abuse path mm -hmm. if they also have the genetic predisposition and other reasons to develop those things. So it's a, it's a long story, but its origins really start in the capacity of our nervous system and our mind and our body to release stress, to re-regulate into a state of balance, homeostasis, we call it in physiology, and to be able to do that over and over again until it gets stronger and stronger and more resilient. So while for a little baby, the biggest challenge might be that there's noise and mommy didn't get the noise out of my way, um, later in life, it could be a burglar, you know, coming into the house or the dog getting sick and, you know, that being a stressor or having a family member pass away yeah. or, you know, having parents get divorced. Those things bring up anger, sadness, frustration, grief. And if we don't know how to deal with them, then over time they can build and build and build and turn into mental health issues as well as many other challenges. Yeah. Wow. So what you're saying then is, so everybody is born with this nervous system and this survival mechanism of dealing with stressors and things. So take, for example, a child who at two or three experiences extreme abandonment or something, or, or somehow their, their emotions are, they are forced to shut down their emotions, right? Which, you know, I think a lot of parents um, have raised it like, don't cry or I'll give you something to cry about, you know, like statements like that, like this whole, like built up the system of, um, you know, we got to make our kids tough. So stop crying or right. Like what would that do 
for a child um, years down the road? How does how does that manifest? That's exactly where this this leads. So when those basic ways of expressing and releasing are taken away from us in whatever form, it's kind of a setup to not having those mechanisms anymore. So we freeze, we go into fight or flight, you know, those basic ways that we deal with stress um, when we don't have the support, the the ability to let go and and express. Um, And the fight, flees, fight or flight or freeze response turns into hormonal imbalances Mm -hmm. over time and uh, basically nervous system that is not able to do what is there to do. Um, The brain can not develop optimally if as a little baby or child, we're in fight or flight or freeze most Mm -hmm. of the time without ability to re-regulate back to baseline. And it's also important to consider that you know, we're talking a, a healthy baby's nervous system and, and system. There are babies, there are many, many babies who don't come into the world completely uh-huh. normal and healthy. So there are you know, some spectrum disorders, the neurodevelopmental abnormalities mm-hmm. there, you know, so even the, the given that we just talked about is not always there in little babies. And so some of them struggle more than others. Any parent who's had uh, three or four children can, can go back and say, you know, these three dealt with whatever this way, but mm-hmm. this one was a little different. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the reality is that we're not all, you know, exactly the same. And our capacity to tap into these mechanisms is, is not all equal. And so the training and the skills building needs to happen to help us no matter who we are, because nobody can can do it all without the support and the help. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. It's something I wish I had known a long time ago. (laughs) But I mean, here we are, and we have this knowledge now. And I'm so grateful that it's out. I'm grateful for people like you that this is out there, you know, that we can share this information. So you know, looking back at the last 20 years, um, we've, there have been a lot of new discoveries, you know, when you're, you're talking about like gut microbiome or um, neuroscience and just some epigenetics and some things that have shaped all of this. Like what changes have you seen in the last 20 years that you feel like are really going to pave the way for this new outlook on mental health and learning to emotionally regulate and the nervous system and helping to heal it. What have you seen that's, that's going to change things for us? Well, I, I think that the neuroscience is huge uh, because, you know, when we're trying to build policy and advocate for things, if we have the research to back up what it is we intuitively know mm-hmm. is needed, then our chances of being able to advocate for those things are much better. And so I'm so grateful to the work of Dr. Stephen Porges, who um, came up with the polyvagal theory, Mm, which is basically the the building block of everything we're talking about, um, is that, you know, this nervous system requires the capacity to learn how to regulate. And if... And if it doesn't learn how to do that, it can go into these fight, flight, freeze modes that can be deadly and detrimental and can, you know, lead to every chronic disease from diabetes to depression, to Mm. cancer, to heart disease, to substance use, to just about anything you imagine has its roots with the polyvagal theory, (laughs) you know, somehow impacting the organism's capacity to deal with stress. Mm. And, um, and so that's, I would say has been huge. The, the neuroscience of inflammation. Yeah. Um, a lot about how uh, stress causes inflammation. Chronic stress causes inflammation that can go on and on to the point of making our pancreas stop doing what it knows how to do, which is to make insulin and keep us able to um, digest and metabolize what we eat. 
or inflammation can cause reproductive challenges where people can have infertility because their stress response has been so high for so long that those natural hormonal systems are not able to do what they're meant to do. And so that gets in the way of pregnancy, for example. Um, And so I can go on and on and depression and now uh, psychosis are thought to be at least um, some types of depression and psychosis are thought to be inflammation mediated. And so chronic stress, a lot of uh, modern lifestyles, you know, sedentary ways of being, what we eat, how we digest and metabolize what we eat all of that can contribute to tendencies towards depression, towards uh, trauma-induced illnesses that are all part of the inflammatory process and and to learn ways to reduce the inflammatory mediators can help us all both prevent disease but also look at someone who has depression and see if it's the inflammatory type of depression Mm -hmm. And then how can we make sure that that gets addressed and not just, you know, have that person be put on a medicine that doesn't uh, impact the the underlying cause, which in that case is, is inflammation. So it's fascinating how some of the neuroscience has shifted or is beginning to shift Mm -hmm. how we see not everyone with depression as the same, not everyone with anxiety as here's your diagnosis. Here's the exact same treatment that I would give to the other thousand people with the same diagnosis that doesn't work very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. And, and especially with, with, when it comes to inflammation and affecting everything, you know, autoimmune illnesses, you know, there's a, there's such a rise in all of those. And, and I think right now, the times that we're living in right now with the pandemic and things shutting down and there's this just period of uncertainty. I'm very concerned about how that is going to affect people's mental well-being. And so what would you say, like, what are, are there tests that you run to determine some of these underlying causes? Like, what would you look at to tell, um, you know, what's going on behind the, like, if we look at, say, depression as a symptom of underlying causes, what would be some things you would do to determine what those underlying causes are? Aside from, you know, what we've already talked about, like trauma and, and growing up, are there other, like, lab tests that you would look at or gut tests? Or what would you do? Yeah, so it all starts, like you said, with asking really good questions, right? So, you know, if, if I don't ask about certain things in a, in a way that is trauma-informed, that helps them feel safe, not judged, that I'm asking these things because I, I truly see them as a whole person with skills and strengths as well as the vulnerabilities, then people are not going to tell me the full story to help me see what is in the you know, underlying factors mm-hmm. to what they're struggling with. So really the first step is setting a space, a safe situation where I can help that person feel like they're in a, in a trusting relationship with me mm-hmm. as their physician and, um, and to be able to share openly about adverse childhood experiences, mm-hmm. about their nutrition, about their substance use, about their relationships, all the things that we don't talk about, you know, right. really, and, unless we feel safe. So that's step number one. Then after, and you know, in our clinic, we actually have people fill out a very long uh, questionnaire before they come in. And, and it's not to make them do a lot of work, but it's really to help them see how complex the picture is. Mm. Because when people think, you know, I'm just going to go to the doctor and get a pill and that's going to make it all better, then they're set up for disappointment. Because even if I do give them the pill, that they think is going to solve things, um, it's probably not going to address, you know, the complexity that we're, we're talking about. And I feel like we ask medications to do things that they're not really made yeah. to do. And so we're always disappointed when they don't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's one of my pet peeves. Um, and so, um, so, so we have people fill out to this questionnaire that asks about 
you know, the last two years, what are some of the stressors you faced? Did you lose a job? Did you, you know, have a breakup? Did you have a divorce? Did you have a health condition? Did you have to get medical care? And maybe that was traumatic in itself. So we ask these things even before they come in. Um, and for the kids and the parents, we ask about screen time and, and sleep yeah. hygiene and mm -hmm. schooling and the type of learning needs that, you know, they might have had that's different than other kids, et cetera. And so when they come into the appointment, they already have a sense that this is going to be a more comprehensive way of looking at things. And so when I ask them these follow-up questions, um, then they kind of know where I'm coming from. And I try to explain to them that I am here to help you reach your potential, not just to be symptom-free and not have depression anymore or whatever, or to have your child not have ADHD anymore. I'm here to help understand what uh, positive and struggles you have and help maximize your child's or your own potential in living a good life. And so with that perspective, it's easier to talk about some of these details. And so after the, the interview, then depending on the questions and the answers, then we would go down the rabbit hole of perhaps doing some lab testing and some psychological testing if that's appropriate. Um, and, you know, for inflammation, for example, we check um, high sensitivity C-reactive protein, which is one of the signs yeah. of inflammation. Um, it's not always necessary to check it because if you have someone with lots of adverse childhood experiences, a tendency towards obesity, maybe even some autoimmune illness, and depression, they're likely having an inflammatory type of depression. So do right. I really need that expensive lab test to say, okay, mm -hmm. you would benefit from this reg regime. But sometimes it's helpful because it's kind of not, not quite certain. Um, we also uh, test a lot of um, micronutrients, you mm -hmm. know, like iron and zinc and magnesium and uh, you know, hormones like thyroid levels and B, uh, other vitamins and minerals like B12 and vitamin mm -hmm. D and, yeah. and to get a sense of what is the environment, what's the nutritional environment this nervous system is trying to get its building blocks met from. Um, and I use the analogy of, you know, having a car and not putting the appropriate fuel to make it go. And so we're, we're having our child's, our own nervous system do activities and demanding it to be, live in pressures without having the basic building blocks <laughs> to right. do well with. And of course we get sick and wonder why we're not you know, performing optimally. And so part of the story is looking at the diet, looking at the nutrition, looking at the sleep cycle, looking at the labs, and then determining you know, what could help this nervous system be at its best. And a lot of times when you address those things, some of the anxiety and the depression mm -hmm. and, and sleep problems go away. So then you don't even need the medication because you were able to help the system heal itself, do some of that regulation, uh, teach them some mind-body skills. I work very closely with the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. Um, and and it's amazing that, you know, you can really save a lot of money by just and, and suffering and, you know, needless um, side effects yeah. by looking at the big picture. And then there's cases where, you know, urgent medication or hospitalization or something like that is needed first before we can do these other things. And that's the work of an integrative psychiatrist is to see the big picture yeah. and not jump in just because it's the easiest thing to do, or this is the only thing people have been trained to do. So of mm -hmm. course, if I only have one tool, then I'm likely to just use one tool. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. And, and I think, you know, it's such a tricky topic when we start talking about medication, because there's this whole idea of med shaming and, you know, things like that. And, and it's, it's, again, this is a sensitive topic because it's affecting how we view the world and our personal experiences and our own personal nervous systems. And, you know, for me, I was put on, there were some medications I was put on that I had some very scary side effects, some hallucinations, some intrusive thoughts, you know, and that's, that's something 
to be aware of. And again, I wish I'd had, I, I love that I know what I know now, but it's like, wow, I wish I'd been able to see the full picture. So what you are doing, that's why I'm so excited to blast this out there that you, there are so many other things that we can look at too. It's not a anti-med, pro-med. It's about what can we do to treat the individual as a whole person aside from like, oh, everybody that has these symptoms is going to need this treatment. Like that just doesn't work these days. We know too much. And so I'm so, so glad that you're saying the things that you're saying. Um, so if I can just add one yeah, thing. Please do. I'm so glad you mentioned that. So I take antidepressant medications mm -hmm. myself. Yeah. I have a history of anxiety and depression mm -hmm. and had to get help in an intensive way in my 20s. Yeah. And I would not be here without medications and without mm -hmm. the conventional care. Yep. And so I am uh, the last person to say these should not be used, yep. but I'm also the poster child of not having learned how to regulate my emotions or deal with yep. my grief or anger or frustration. I didn't even have the words to describe half of those things mm -hmm. until much later when I was like, oh, I should have been angry at this. How come I didn't feel the anger? And so, um, so I'm still kind of um, in some ways paying the price of uh, not having learned some of those things, not having had that support when I was a little girl. Mm -hmm. um, and I was lucky enough that the conventional psychiatric medical community was there when I was in dire need. Because yes. if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have learned all these other things that now I can offer to people in addition or instead yes. of or before they have to go to the point mm -hmm. of, you know, no return almost. Yeah. Um, and, you know, suicide is an epidemic now in our society, um, especially for those who are high achievers and, mm -hmm. you know, feel the pressure of, you know, needing to be the best and, and needing to take care of everybody else. It's um, so we really need to look very seriously about not doing this black and white of this is good, this is bad. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because that divides us as people yes. and we don't need any more divisions. Yeah. Oh, thank you so, so much for saying that. I am so over, I've been overwhelmed lately by the amount of division that is happening. And, and with conversations like this, when it comes to medical treatments or whatever, like there, and I just love that you said that you're a testimony to conventional medicine working as well as some of these other tools, because people need to hear that. And I, I, my voice is not enough. We need all of our voices. You know, all of us need to be saying this because yes, I am, I would not be here if it wasn't for a doctor who said, Hey, let's get you started on this. You know? Um, but again, these tools that we have now can just, it's that whole saying, you know, know better, do better. And, and we just continue as, as we grow to learn and add in more tools. So thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that because I think that that is really important for people to hear. Um, I, I love that. So Let's talk just for a minute because I mean, we are, time is flying by and I'm afraid we're going to run out of time. Um, I'd love to know a little bit more about your work, the work that you do with American Indian communities, um, with refugees and what you're seeing there and, and how you help support. I, I'm a former, former, I mentioned you earlier, a former ESL teacher, and I'm very passionate about that group of people as well. And so let's talk a little bit about your work there. Where to begin? So <laughs> when I um, so I left uh, medicine for five years um, along this journey, partly because of my own burnout and depression. Oh wow! Because I didn't know if I was cut out to be in a system that mm -hmm. you know was uh, didn't have didn't leave space for the diversity and the the needs that I had at the time anymore. Um, so I was a bit of a fish out of water in medicine for a while. So during that five years, um, this was in early 2000s, um, I uh, did some volunteer work for the International Rescue Committee, the refugee office in uh, New Haven, Connecticut at the time. And um, I was a volunteer and I unexpectedly ended up, surprise, with three foster kids with PTSD from Afghanistan. Wow when one of their parents um, tried to commit suicide. Wow. 
And I happened to know the kids because I was a volunteer and they came to live with me and the state of Connecticut made me a foster mom retroactively so that they could legitimately, you know, be with me for six months, I think. And those kids are all grown up and have their own kids now. So mm -hmm. I'm a proud grandmother of these, uh, these precious uh, beings. But that began my journey of really working with uh, traumatized populations uh, while I was working on learning about my own history and trauma and working yeah. through it. So it was a perfect uh, exercise in know thyself and then you'll be able to help other people too. <laughs> um, and so my, my love for working with refugees and immigrants has continued partly because I'm, I'm an immigrant um, and, uh, but partly because of these kids. Um, and so uh, you know, I, and that continues now. So now I do psychiatric evaluations at detention centers for people seeking asylum to the United States from all over. I just had a, a young woman from Russia. Um, we have people from South America, Central America, Africa. Um, it's, it's incredible. And these people have been tortured, um, you know, abused in their countries, either politically or because of their gender, or because of their sexuality. And they are seeking help to be in safety, just like any other human would, you know, look for safety for themselves, for their kids. And uh, so they're in detention centers and I get to take my medical students and residents and, and we go visit these places and we uh, hear their stories. And it is one of the most profound experiences a human can have because you recognize how similar we all are as human beings. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's an honor for me because I get to teach trauma-informed care to the medical students by having them watch, you know, how it's done. I teach them about culture and how mental health and mental illness manifest differently in different cultures and part of the healing process is to get to know that person's background and culture and help them reconnect with how strong they are with the resiliency that their people have lived for thousands of years that they think you know they're the only ones in in the middle of this chaos mm. but really humans have gone through horrendous things forever and ever and ever. And there's something in our capacity to heal, in our capacity to reach out, in our capacity to ask for help and support each other that has somehow helped us make it through 2020, half of 2020. <laughs> yeah. uh, stay tuned for the rest. Uh, but that's what I do is, is give inspiration and hope based on both my own journey, but also my education and what I know about trauma and the nervous system and emotion regulation and psychoneuroimmunology to these um, individuals who, you know, are lost in a new country in a cell and have no idea if they're going to, you know, be let go or how long they're going to stay there and how long they're going to be separated from their families or their loved ones. So that's part of what I do. And shall I go to the Native American work next? <laughs> sure. Yes. I love, I love all of it. I mean, I'm just like, oh, my heart is so heavy. It's, it's a lot. It's heavy, heavy lifting is what you're doing. Oh my goodness. Yes. Head, head for that. Yeah, um, and just briefly, the other thing I do with the asylum work is work very closely with attorneys who are doing formal work because they too are being, um, you know, they're witnessing and hearing stories that are traumatic for them too. Like mm, I'm sure, help, but they can't take away, you know, generations of maltreatment and abuse and torture. They can just write their paper and mm -hmm. give it to the judge. But the actual process is quite stressful for all involved. Um, so, uh, so I, you know, talk to law students and people who want to do this kind of social justice work and help them learn how to regulate their emotions and take care of their own mind body wellness, because otherwise they're not going to be able to lend a hand to, you know, this woman who's been raped 20 times and tortured oh, and abused, you know, in some country mm -hmm. and is here in 
in what feels like a prison instead of a detention center. So that's that. Um, and then my work with the American Indian tribes um, is another love of my, my life. Um, you know, there are things I do that I could just do for free forever and <laughs> never say a word because they feed my soul in a way that uh, is beyond um, anything. So I started working with tribes as a medical student. Um, I was at University of Virginia and I had the opportunity to go to a Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota and um, do like a summer internship uh, with a doctor who worked at the Indian Health Services Hospital in Rapid City, South Dakota. And that started my journey of learning about a whole different culture that I had never even known about being from Iran, you know, mm -hmm. a whole different uh, you know, set of ceremonies and rituals and uh, ways of doing things. So, so that was fascinating because I started working in, in Rapid City as a little medical student volunteer and I realized I was useless because I didn't really have any skills. I, the needs were so great. The wait times in the emergency room were 20 hours for people wow. who come with a broken leg. And um, it was kind of a... Uh, recognition that I had a long way to go to be able to advocate for the kind of change that needed to happen for those communities. What I did learn, though, was that the culture, the love, the, the sense of connection that people had to nature, to each other, to their history, to their ancestors was so beautiful and incredible that it reminded me of my own you know, my own ancestors that I don't even know about. You know, it was, there was some uh, intuitive gut level of, wow, these are like my people. And so that started my journey of wanting to work with the tribes for whatever, uh, in whatever way over my career. And so that led to my training with the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, which then helped us create a team of volunteers to go out to Pine Ridge and Rosebud and Rapid City uh, to provide mind-body skills training uh, to teachers, to social workers, to parents. Um, and that work has grown um, incredibly, I would have never imagined. And now we just found out a few days ago that we have an NIH grant um, to look at uh, mind-body medicine resiliency work with youth on Native American reservations in wow. Arizona. And it's a five-year project, and um, it's through the University of Arizona. Um, my colleague, Dr. Francine Gachupin, who's Native herself, mm -hmm. um, is the, the principal investigator, and I'm proud to be one of her helpers. Um, and we will be facilitating mind-body training for parents and youth on many, many different tribes in Arizona. And uh, as part of teaching emotion regulation, empowering them to reconnect with their own sense of strength and resiliency and culture and language. Um, and uh, to really bring the science of nutrition, of physical activity, of mind-body medicine, of these emotion regulation skills trainings to part of what they're learning as youth so that their risks of obesity, depression, suicide, substance use, which is staggeringly high compared mm -hmm. to the rest of the U.S., um, can, can begin to go down, you know, someday before I die. I would love to be able to look at those numbers mm -hmm. and say, you know, these precious kids and families are not dying, you know, anymore at ages of 20 and 30 and 10 and 11. Um, and I, you know, that's my wish for all of humanity, but there's mm -hmm. something very precious about the, the native communities because talking about trauma, you know, they went through a yeah. cultural mass genocide mm -hmm. of their people. So they have a lot of healing to work yeah. on of us hopefully learn from them and support them and watch them excel and succeed and and do good things in the world yeah and and it's so so good that you bring up trauma lasting generations because i don't think a lot of people realize it's it's passed down in our dna as well and so we carry the marks of some of these certain types of traumas depending on our backgrounds and, and our kids are going to carry and somehow you got to break the chain you know and and 
change that, as we said, epigenetically, change the genetic expression and learn these things and try to, but I think there's something else that you mentioned that I, I think is so important, you know, talking about dealing with mental wellness and mental health and culturally um, appropriate ways, because it's not, again, just like with symptoms and medication and treatment, if there's no one size fits all, it's the same for people who are coming here to this country. Like we have to understand that, yes, we're a melting pot, but we just can't melt everybody the same way. Right. <laughs> like I saw as a teacher, I saw it. I saw everybody trying to fit these kids into the quote American style of learning. And we have to pass these tests and we have to make sure that they meet the standard. And it's like, man, what about their standard of just well-being and like I had kids that wouldn't speak for months because they were so traumatized you know anyway I just oh, I have chills because this is something I'm also very passionate about and we are completely out of time <laughs> but thank you so much um where can people find out more about your work is, is do you have a website that that people could go look at or um you know center for mind body medicine where where would people go if they want to find out more information about what you're doing I'm happy to send you. Um, I have a we have a website through the University of Arizona Department of Psychiatry where I'm faculty, um, as well as at the Center for Mind Body Medicine where I serve as faculty, as well as the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine where I serve as faculty. So, um, and I'm um, happy to you know be a resource and um, and um, and continue this conversation. And I'll say one last thing. Um, there's a new organization called Same Here Global that is trying to normalize the stigma around mental health. Um, and it actually started with talking to star athletes and celebrities and normalizing mental health for them. Um, and now my story about my own mental health is on their website. So you can also awesome. go to Same Here and um, and read about what people who are doing this work now actually went through earlier in their own way so that nobody's alone in this. I love that. I will make sure and link some of those things in the show notes. But um, thank you again for taking the time to do this and sharing your knowledge and sharing your passions and your own story. I I just appreciate your voice in, in this world. Thank you, Erin. Likewise, take good care. Thanks for tuning in to Sparking Wholeness. For more on all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul, check out my website, sparkingwholeness.com. Don't forget to be kind and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And to be really kind, you can leave a nice review. I like those.